Hear ye, hear ye. Court is now in session. This trial conducted by the Sanhedrin convenes under the authority of our Roman occupiers and by the presiding authority of Joseph called Caiaphas, our great and beloved high priest. All those having business before this honorable court are admonished to draw near, give their attention, and they shall be heard. This court will hear the case of the synagogue of the freedmen versus Stephen, the follower of Jesus, the Nazarene. The charge is blasphemy against Moses and against his, this holy temple. This is a capital crime. Stephen, how do you plead? Now, I don't think that that's actually how the Sanhedrin started their trials. Uh, we, as far as I know, we actually don't have very many records of, of how they actually began their proceedings. But we have in Acts chapter 7 recorded for us a trial. It is definitely and clearly a trial. And in fact, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the part of the transcript that we have from Acts chapter 7. Take your scriptures and turn there uh, with me this morning. Ominously, Acts chapter 7 records a trial for us that is held in the same place before the same people, ruled over by the same presiding judge that two or three years before had condemned Jesus to death. Now, though, it's Stephen that is on trial. There was a group of Hellenistic Jews. That is, they were a group of Jews who were either themselves or descendants of people who had been carried off into slavery away from Palestine but have now returned as freed men and women and they have a synagogue and having been separated from the Holy Land, not being near the temple, not being in a place where the law of Moses is upheld and valued by everyone, they dearly love this temple and this law and this city. They've heard Stephen's robust presentation. Stephen has been preaching everywhere that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and they didn't like it. They could not or they would not see the connection between the mighty Messiah prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures, the great Messiah who would come and rule and crush all of Israel's enemies. They could not see the connection between that promised one and the carpenter from Nazareth. In fact, this carpenter, he'd been condemned and cursed and crushed by these Jewish leaders in every way. There is no possible way that this Jesus could be the Messiah. Stephen, though, he was convinced that he was, and he kept marshalling these biblical arguments. They were seemingly unassailable. His, his opponents, actually, they could not refute him, um, and they, they couldn't really dismiss him as a madman or as, a, as a, a cruel megalomaniac. Stephen, when he wasn't preaching, was handing out bread to widows. And by all accounts, he was a, a gracious, kind man. He's, he's not a raving lunatic. And he kept insisting, Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus is Lord and Savior. 
they couldn't overcome his arguments, so what they decided to do was uh, try some creative means. They accused him of blasphemy. This Jesus that Stephen was proclaiming had not come from the temple system. He didn't go to any of the temple schools. He wasn't a Sanhedrin. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He wasn't a member of the ruling elite. And sometimes Jesus was just, man, he was vicious sometimes to those teachers of the law. He hadn't been trained in any of their rabbinical schools, but he was, he was just brutal to them about how they talked about the temple and how they talked about the law. He did not have very much respect for this august body, the Sanhedrin. And Stephen was at least facing in the same direction. And since the temple is holy and the law came from Moses, Stephen must be a blasphemer. He, he is a man who has no regard for Moses and no respect for God's law, so he's on trial. We don't have a transcript of the trial. Uh, we don't have any of the opening arguments. We don't have any of the witness testimony. Actually, all we have here is a summary in chapter 7 of Stephen's defense. Um, I mentioned that it's a summary, even though it's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, by twice as long as anything else. But it's still just a, a summary. And, and it's one that he didn't actually even finish. It seems like he gets interrupted before he really gets to his conclusion. I, I want to read this sermon for you, but before I do that, I want to give you a couple reasons um, with a, a good bit of detail here why Luke devoted so much space to this trial. Why are there three scenes here in the middle of the book of Acts or towards the beginning of the book of Acts that feature a man who was not one of the original apostles and not the person who carried the gospel to the Roman world? Why is there so much focus on Stephen here? Um, what did Luke want us to see or to know? Two things. One of them is theological and one of them is more practical. First, these Stephen stories are here to tell us why the church today is primarily Gentiles, uh, made up primarily of Gentiles and not Jews. Why is the church primarily Gentile and not Jewish? Um, two-thirds of this book, this book that we love, two-thirds of this book is uh, the story of ethnic Jews. Jewish scripture that we have. This is our book and we cherish it. We feel a kinship with these characters and we love them, but they're not by and large uh, our ethnic or our historical roots, nor are most of the followers of Jesus Christ today. When I first moved to Lancaster County uh, about 15 years ago, I went to a soccer game at New Danville Mennonite School. And I went there because uh, somebody from our congregation was playing on the soccer team, and I went to watch. And while I stood on the sidelines, uh, I was standing there, and I heard them cheering for one another. Pass it to me, Isaiah. I'm open, Daniel. Nice pass, Amos. Isaac, give me the ball. And on the sidelines were the Mennonite cheerleaders, Hannah, Ruth, Esther, Rachel, Sarah. No, there weren't really Mennonite cheerleaders, but that's what their names would have been, right? Esther, Sarah, Ruth, Rachel. Hebrew names everywhere, nary a Hebrew to be found. Uh, why? Why all these Gentile followers of Jesus who is the Jewish Messiah? 
Now, Acts 7 answers that question for us. It's the beginning of the Bible's answer to that question for us. And you should realize this is not at all the only time that the Bible addresses this. In fact, if you want an in-depth, detailed, theological discussion of this, Paul does it in Romans 9 through 11. Why is the church made up mostly of Gentiles and not Jews? considering that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Actually, Paul has a a more important question in mind, even in approaching that, than just idle curiosity. Paul's, in Romans chapter 8, he'd given all these grand and great promises that God makes. How do we know, how can we trust that God's going to keep his promises if his chosen people are not followers of Jesus? How do we know he's going to keep his promises to us if seemingly his promises to Abraham and Moses and David have have failed. Well, that's um, uh, Paul's detailed theological treatise in Romans 9 through 11. Here, though, in Acts 7, Stephen tells a story. And it's a story of a nation that over a long period of time is beset with rebellion against God and rejection of his authority. Rebellion and rejection that's repeated over and over and over again. They rejected Joseph, they rejected Moses, and now they're in the midst of, historically, Acts 7, rejecting Jesus. And that alienation continues to this day. Now, let's be very careful, very careful. Acts chapter 7 is one of those passages that people who um, have little respect for the Bible or little respect for how to read the Bible, Acts 7 is one of those passages that they use to justify what could be called Christian anti-Semitism. It's passages like Acts chapter 7 that would be used by the Nazi propaganda machine to convince cultural Christians in Germany that what they were doing to the Jews was a good idea and was biblically sanctioned. Uh, Lest you think that that's where this passage is going at all, you should remember or understand that Paul actually takes some of the same vocabulary in Acts 7 and applies it to all of us in Romans chapter 1. This is one slice of a total human story, a human story of rejection and rebellion against God. This is our story here, too. Now, what makes, though, this particular telling of this story about this one nation so troubling is that these are God's chosen people. They were the recipients of some of God's greatest blessings Um, We read about God's true work, God's great work throughout history here. And they rebelled against him anyway. This is the worst prodigal son story that ever could be told. If you could boil this chapter down to one life, and there was one father and one child, and we could read it as if it were that one story, you would gasp. You would gasp at the kindness and the blessing and the mercy of God, and you'd gasp at the ugly, petulant rebellion of his son. It's the worst prodigal story ever told. Have you ever talked to somebody who, um, whose child they, they raised, they, they took him to church, they taught them the ways of Christ? Have you ever talked to them... Uh, a parent whose child has been raised like that and then they walk away from the faith? Those are heartbreaking conversations. One of the questions that comes up all the time in those conversations is, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? 
usually those conversations or usually the thought that's behind those questions is driven by a little bit of truth and a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of regret and a lot of fear and a lot of misunderstanding about how much control you actually have over what your children will decide to do. Uh, I was reading a study this week. I, I have something to say that I want to, will discourage you and something that will encourage you. This is what will discourage you. Um, I, I was reading again, like we, need, like we need more of these, but a study came across my computer screen that was done a few weeks ago, and it reminded us we know this to be true, don't we? The number one factor in influencing whether or not someone, a young adult, remains or leaves the faith not the only factor, but the number one factor is how they see their parents live out the faith in their home. Not what happens on Sunday, not what they do on Sunday, not what happens here in church, but how their parents live out the faith during the week. If you have young children like I do, you should take that as a huge challenge. Lord, make my life on Tuesday match the life that I live here on Sunday. Um. If you have grown children who are, are walking away, that's, that's very discouraging. But you should be encouraged by the fact that here we're going to read this story where the father in this story, when he asks himself, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? The answer for God is nothing, absolutely nothing. God is the perfect parent and he has children who rebel over and over and over again. You should be somewhat encouraged by that. So this sermon here is to tell us why is the church made up of more Gentiles than Jews? This is a culmination of family patterns. Stephen helps us to see how this pattern unfolds. And we take this pattern here as a reminder of God's great grace to us. If you're not a descendant, a physical descendant of Abraham, and you have found Jesus Christ, you're like a branch that's been grafted into the roots of another tree. Or, imagine this next Saturday, you're walking downtown uh, through the central market, and and you're in the downtown area, and of course you're going by some Long's horseradish, because that's just what you should do, and and then you're wandering around downtown, and you're right outside the the old Watt and Shan building, which is now the the convention center, the beautiful building, and somebody comes out in a tuxedo, a distinguished looking man, and he says, you look hungry, would you like something to eat? (laughs) A little suspicious, but... Hey, your game. So you agree and, and you go inside. And if you walk into a beautiful ballroom down at the Marriott and you sit at a table with linen cloths and linen napkins and beautiful china and crystal and silver and you see the table laden with food. And if you say to your host, what's going on? And he says to you, my daughter's getting married today. And I invited a lot of people. And they didn't come. And I had prepared this feast. And I saw you. You looked hungry and cold. And I wanted to welcome you in. If that happens to you next weekend, you know that you are the great recipient of grace. A tremendous amount of kindness on someone else's part. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ but do not replace, trace our lineage back to Abraham are, are the wanderers on the street who have been welcomed into the family feast. And it's grace upon grace upon grace. So 
this is part of the explanation, the beginning of the explanation of why the church is uh, mostly made up of Gentiles and not Jews. But secondly here, this passage reminds us, this long trial speech that Stephen makes also teaches us not to reduce God. It teaches us not to reduce God. This is the story of resisting God and reducing him. Now, how did they do these things? These Jewish leaders reduced God by how they treated the temple, this building that they had. They thought that this temple, this house where God uh, lived, gave them controlling authority over God, when in fact it's the other way around. This has always been the human struggle. Uh, this is what religious. This is how religious people become godless people. They think that the relationship or the knowledge that they have with God gives them controlling authority over God, rather than uh, it being a call for them to submit to God. They treated the temple like a good luck charm that it guaranteed that they'd be safe, that God would protect them, but it didn't change their behavior at all. This blessing of God's presence was enough for them to be cocky, but not enough for them to be gracious, transformed, humble. Think about the difference between saying this, God is mine, or, well, there's more of us, God is ours, and we are his difference between those two things isn't there god is ours we own him it's much different than we are his he owns us and this is a story here of this diminishment of god right at the beginning here verse two it says brothers and fathers listen to me the god of glory that is the great and glorious and magnificent god he is And he is a God who is worth, and Abraham will prove this, he is worth leaving your other gods for. And if he tells you to pack up your belongings and go to a land that he'll eventually show you, you listen, because he's the God of glory. He is that great. In every instance in the Bible, it argues to us, not for us to say he is ours, but for us to say we are his. You build your life around this God. If your relationship with God is real, you will feel at various times the weight of his authority. There will be ways in which he will be pressing down on you, ways in which you feel the weight of his calling in what you love and what you think and what you feel and what you want. He, he matters in how you think about your job. And he matters in how you interact with your friends and how you use your cell phone what you do with your car. You don't contain him. He contains you. Now, I've talked for a long time, and we haven't even read the passage yet, which is usually not our practice. Um, So we're going to address that. This is a long passage of Scripture, longest passage that we're going to have probably in the book of Acts as we go through it. We're not embarrassed by long passages of Scripture. I'm just warning you up front. And I'm going to read it all, and I'm going to do my best to read it as well as I can. Our best scripture readers in our church try to communicate the meaning to you of the text when they read it, and it's so good to hear. Well, I'll do my best with this long story. It ends with this stinging indictment. Uh, I wanna, what I'm going to do at the end, after we, we read this story, I want to I be a little bit more positive. This is the story of what the Israelites missed, and I want to speak to you a little bit more positively about... Um, 
what, what the Israelites should have known, what it, instead of reducing and rebelling against God, what would it have been like for them to surrender and magnify God? That's what we're going to get to. First of all, let's, let's read the story, all right, or the sermon. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit some of his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. (laughs) Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came up came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, why are brothers? You are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he had settled as a foreigner and had two sons. 
after 40 years had passed. An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And he went over to get a closer look and he heard the word of the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses that they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and judge, deliverer, by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifice and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle and our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. And then a great hullabaloo starts. Hullabaloo is an ancient Greek word, and we'll talk about that next week. Now, this is a review of a story. It's a story that, if you've been in Sunday school, you know most of the details that, Moses, uh, that Stephen goes over. He, he summarizes and puts some things together and adds some details here and there, but it's a story that everybody is familiar with. In fact, 
It, this is uh, soaked in Scripture. In this sermon, Stephen quotes from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Amos, and Isaiah, and he alludes to Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, 1 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Nehemiah, Psalms, Jeremiah, and Hosea. <laughs> My sermons have never been that soaked with Scripture. Stephen tells a story, but he does so with a certain interpretive grid. He shows them this consistent pattern of rejecting and reducing God. I'm going to turn this text around, and I want to show you positively what would it have looked like for God's people if instead of rejecting and reducing God, they had surrendered to him and magnified him. What would it have looked like if this story were turned around the other way? And I want to do that to answer this question. What does it mean for us when God calls to surrender and magnify him rather than to reject and reduce? And four things. Number one, this means reject, uh, recognizing God's effective use of suffering. Recognizing God's effective use of suffering. Now, this is an unusual place to start, I think, with, with suffering. It's not a major emphasis in the text, but it's important enough that I think we should look at it and think about it. Remember, one of the objections that these Jewish leaders had, Jesus cannot be the Messiah because he was crucified. And the Messiah is the glorious, victorious one. And there's no way that if Jesus is the Messiah, he could suffer. How could he possibly be their savior if he was crucified? Now, they're acting out of a view here about sin or about suffering that a lot of people hold that has more to do with Eastern religion and Eastern mysticism than Christianity. Whether or not they they knew it, they were acting, they believed, as most people do, in karma. This idea that bad things happen to bad people. And suffering divine punishment for wrong things means that you have done wrong. How could Jesus, if he was condemned by God on a cross, how can he be their savior? Because bad things happen to bad people. That's the way suffering works. That's the understanding of uh, karma. And people who, who believe that, their first question when they suffer is, why is God punishing me? Or what have I done wrong that, that God is angry with me. It's not what the Bible teaches, but it's so prevalent, it proves the truth of a bumper sticker I saw once. In contrast to, to our understanding of what, the, what doctrine and theological teaches, uh, this bumper sticker, it says, My karma ran over your dogma. <laughs> Doesn't matter what we believe or what's written in our doctrinal statement, we have this understanding that bad things happen to bad people. Stephen's uh, review here focuses on three people, right? Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. And it focuses on one object, the tabernacle or the temple. And all three of those men experienced suffering, and they followed God through it. Abraham had no children. Joseph was sold into slavery. Moses was separated from his family. He was rejected by his parents, his, his, his people. He spent 40 years in the, in the wilderness The Israelites were enslaved for 400 years. We talked about this last week as a theme of Stephen's life, that God makes suffering the servant of his people. This is not karma. This is purposeful, intentional training on God's part. You know this, don't you? 
If you want to make any part of your muscles, if you want any of your muscles to grow in in health or strength or size, you have to exercise, you have to work out. No one has ever gotten in good shape by sitting in their recliner. Some of you are waiting for that pill, right, that's going to do that. Someday it's going to happen, right? We're going to have a pill and, well, it doesn't work now. Uh, you, you can't lay in your recline. You have to use your muscles. In fact, you have to push your muscles to the point of exhaustion in order for them to grow. That's how muscles grow. Push them to the point of exhaustion long enough and skillfully enough, and you'll see growth. You'll see progress. Something similar happens in the disciplined work of following Christ. God uses suffering. He uses it effectively in the lives of his people. You should know this. We should know this as followers of Jesus Christ, shouldn't we? We should know this because it was through suffering that God saves us, that he rescues us. It was through Jesus' death on the cross. See, see, these Jews, these Jewish leaders, thought that Jesus' crucifixion disqualified him from being our Savior. Actually, it's what makes him our Savior. Because he bore on the cross the penalty that we owed. He suffered in our place as our substitute because of our sin. And he's our qualified Savior. God effectively uses suffering in the lives of his people. You will be lost. You will be lost and broken in a Genesis 3 world unless you believe this and understand that. Now, second here, rather than rejecting and reducing God, uh, he calls us to surrender and magnify him by trusting in his good promises. Trusting in his good promises. I mentioned that this first part of Stephen's speech is about Abraham, but it's actually not really about Abraham. Did you notice it's always God who takes the initiative, God who calls, God who sends, God who gives. This first section is really about God's faithfulness in his work. Um, Remember, the God of the Bible is not a God to be controlled. He's a God to be obeyed because he is the chief actor. He is the initiator. Um, have Have you spent time with with struggling followers of Christ that they're struggling because God isn't doing what they want him to do, not in their way and according to their schedule and and in exactly the, the right time and way that they want. See, if, if Jesus is really the Savior that God has sent, these leaders have to face the fact that he's not the Savior that they expected or that they wanted, but he's the one that they desperately needed. They didn't want Joseph. They didn't want Moses. They don't want Jesus. uh, But in due time, they needed all three of them. Trust that God is good enough to give you not what you expect or what you think you want, but what you need. And if you orient yourself In faith to him, what you need will actually be what you want. I was uh, listening to a a sermon not too long ago. Help me understand a passage of scripture that's sometimes puzzling. Romans chapter 8 says that the Holy Spirit prays for us. What does the Holy Spirit pray, or how does the Holy Spirit pray for us? This uh, uh, speaker said that the Holy Spirit asked the Father for what we would have asked him if we had known and understood the circumstances of our life like God does. 
Trust in God's good provisions. Now third, surrendering and magnifying God in contrast to this pattern of rejecting and and reducing him means that we celebrate God's preparatory work. It means celebrating God's preparatory work. Now this is unusual. We're going to spend some time here because Stephen's speech, I think, helps us understand how the Bible is put together. Stephen tells the story of Israel's history to show that God has been consistently giving the people uh, leaders and deliverers like Jesus so that when Jesus came, they would recognize him. Noticing these patterns in the story of the Bible is sometimes what's called biblical theology. Uh, when I was in elementary school, our teacher um, would, got an overhead projector out. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, look up, Google it, and you'll find one. Uh, got an overhead projector way back in the dark ages, and, and put the projector down and, and, uh, in front of us, and we sat down in chairs, and she projected a light us, uh, on us, and, and she drew silhouettes. This was uh, for open house, what she did. We sat there, she drew our, our outline on a black piece of paper, and, and we cut it out and, and glued it onto a white sheet of paper and hung it all over the class, and one of the objects was on open house, you were supposed to walk in the room and see if you could find your silhouette. See if your parents could, could recognize you, the shape of your face. So we walked into the classroom and there we all stood and there it is. There's mine. Uh, so Joseph and Moses are the silhouette and Jesus comes and you're supposed to recognize him by the, the shapes that you've already seen. There's shapes of Jesus all the way through the Old Testament. But Stephen brings out a a few of them uh, here. Um, Let's think about Joseph for just a minute. Joseph was rejected by his family, uh, by other ethnic descendants of of Abraham. He was sold for slavery. God was with him, the text says. What what it means when God is with him, it means God was present with him and active in an unusual way. And in John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus sits down with Jesus and he says to him, we know that nobody could do the miracles that you do unless God is with him. Uh, Joseph was used in God's time. His brothers thought he was dead, but he was really alive. And through his wisdom and authority, he rescued his entire family. You see the silhouette match between Joseph and Jesus? Now, Stephen makes it even clearer with Moses, I think. Moses is mighty, just like Jesus is, in word and deed. Acts 2.22, Jesus is mighty, same, same word. Moses was rejected by his people, even though he was the one who had come to rescue them. He was commissioned by God to go to them. Verse 35 of, of, of uh, Acts 7 says... Um, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? Do you know what the word those are? This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you Lord and Savior? He was sent to be their Lord and Savior by God himself. He did wonders and signs, the text says. The only people in the Bible who do wonders and signs are Moses, the apostles, Stephen, and Jesus. They do wonders and signs. That phrase is ascribed to them. Moses was the one that brought us living words for us, Stephen said. And Jesus comes and he is the word of God. Now, let me point out one more parallel for my more theological friends. Um, I've had two discussions in the last month about my view of the end times. I would point out to you here that Stephen says that it was during their second encounter with Joseph and with Moses 
that the nation of Israel recognized that God had sent them. It was the second encounter. I think that Jesus is coming back a second time. And I think that when he comes the second time is when uh, there will be a massive turning of those who are descendants of Abraham to him as Lord and Savior. Stephen was a good premillennialist. You should join Stephen and I and be a premillennialist too. Well, now if you don't know what that means, don't worry about that. Let's keep going here. Stephen tells this pattern here, the pattern of, of rejection. And what the pattern of rejection should do is it should serve to convict the Sanhedrin. He's telling them, you turn from Joseph, you turn from Moses, and you are in danger of rejecting Jesus. And they should be convicted by this. That's what should happen. Uh, is there ever a prophet that you did not persecute? And the Sanhedrin should be cut to the heart by this. They're not. We see, though, this foreshadowing here in Joseph and Moses and then Jesus and rejoice. Isn't God good? Isn't God wise and powerful? Look how he put history together so that when Jesus shows up, we say, yes, this is the one. This is the Lord and Savior that God has sent us. I talk about this too much. I'll stop after today. But it reminds me of fireworks. Right at the beginning, they start out kind of slow. You get one pop. There's Joseph. Then halfway through the show, it gets a little bit bigger. Moses. Three beautiful colors shine. And then Jesus comes on the scene. <laughs> what happens? In the orchestra, boom, and these fireworks are everywhere. All the way through the Bible. And Jesus, look at it. Wow. Wow. Look at what God has done to get us ready for this one to come who is the Lord and Savior. Joseph gave them food. That's good. They needed food. Moses, he led them out of slavery into the promised land. Oh, that that was excellent. But Jesus has come to rescue us from death and to give us eternal life. Stephen wants them to know that he is honoring Moses and he is honoring the law by exalting in Jesus Christ. Stephen's going to get to this more in the passage we come to next week. But friend, consider the Savior, the Savior to whom the Bible invites you to turn. It's Jesus Christ. There is no one who has ever walked the planet like this man. God in the flesh, our Savior sent from God. Would you turn to him and trust him and find life in him? Now finally here, surrendering and magnifying him means noticing God's supremacy over all our formulas and all our systems. So at the end of the sermon here, Stephen turns to the tabernacle and the temple. They thought that God was limited to this space they had. And as such, um, well... Their mistake, they thought God was limited to the tabernacle and therefore they thought he wasn't sufficient for them and they thought that they needed other gods, other gods to take care of them. But Stephen reminds them here that God works beyond the confines of the building that they had built for him. Remember, he met Abraham in Mesopotamia 
He was with Joseph in, in Egypt. He called Moses from Midian. God isn't limited to a little tiny space, a little tiny building in one city. God is the God of the whole planet and calls people and works people through people all over the place. Is there anything that a human being can build that can contain God? We have this tendency to limit God. We have this tendency to limit him to our buildings. This room, after all, what is this room? It's the sanctuary. That's why I don't call it the sanctuary. Uh, we limit God to, to Sundays. If, if you're in this church on a Sunday, you better do holy things. Other than that, eh. Right? As if, if God can be contained to certain spheres or certain days or certain places. As if God is not aware of or God is not interested in what you do in your truck on the way to work. Or uh, to, to think that is to re- reduce him. It's to resist the Holy Spirit. It's to take his name in vain. It's to have about you only the external marks of religion like circumcision could be without the corresponding heart change. You think with me for, the different, uh, for a moment about the difference between a picture of the Grand Canyon and the Grand Canyon itself. I've, I've never seen the Grand Canyon my, myself, but I've seen pictures of it. I've seen large pictures of it. Um, we could put on this, this screen behind us a, a huge picture of the Grand Canyon, but huh, it, it won't compare at all to seeing the real Grand Canyon. You can't capture in a picture what it's like to see all of those oranges and yellows and browns and that that the depth of the ravine and it's 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 immensity it's 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 a completely different experience to see the picture a picture of the grand canyon and to see the grand canyon when you try to reduce god and minimize him put him in a building or put him on a day or put him in your own system and formula it's like preferring the picture of the Grand Canyon to the Grand Canyon that is. Only a fool would do that. Don't settle for a paper relationship with a manageable God. Stephen points us to the the supremacy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you today and uh, we hear what Stephen says to this, this group of men who are in the process of rejecting Jesus Christ. And we receive it as, as a warning about hard-heartedness. And we also exult in it as a declaration of the supremacy of our Lord. Father, we, we have seen this over and over again in the book of Acts, how great our Savior Jesus Christ is. And Lord, I pray that you would change our congregation by the fact that we see how exalted and supreme he is. Thank you for your grace that though we are not Hebrews by birth, we are followers of Jesus Christ. That's your kindness to us. And thank you that we can exalt in his supremacy, Christ's supremacy, even though to to our sorrow there are people around us who turn and reject. 
Lord, glorify your name in our church by our glad surrender to your excellence and our um, confident and joyful exuberance in magnifying your great name. We pray these things in Christ's name, saying, Amen.